welcome on to Moxie with FP Wellman on Colin. You know, if you're listening to us on the web, I hope you'll download the Colin app and join us live to talk about our democracy and the moment we face today. You know, it's free to download and subscribe. And then all of our shows, you know, they publish on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. I don't know. And wherever you get your podcasts, I hope you'll join us wherever that is. Uh, tell your friends to subscribe as well. And, you know, and with that, as much as I love doing this job and I love a little music, let's get the show rolling. So glad to have you here for the show. This is On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. You know, this is the show where we talk about, you know, what's going on in our democracy with smart people who are fighting for it every day across the country. It's been a, man, it's been a crazy week. I think I say that every time, but whatever. If you're used to it, you're used to it. The January 6th committee met last week for the last time for the summer season, um, but they announced there's more to come and a huge foreshadowing, which we're all excited about. It was a, it was a memorable hearing, not the least of which for the utter humiliation of seeing uh, my Senator Josh Hawley running like a scared little rabbit from the mob he stirred up only hours before. You know, uh, Congressman Elaine Luria really, you know, absolutely deadpan and delivered at the moment. Uh, if you watch the show, making it even more obvious that the room <laughs> and the room just broke out in laughter. You know, our friends, the Missouri Democratic Party, have already turned out some fine show-me-running apparel uh, and swag. And uh, by the way, I hope to go to their website, their store there, and buy some of that stuff. And they're going to be hosting a virtual 5K next month in honor of Josh's sprinting capability. You all should sign up for it. But, uh, you know, interesting enough, this week we got some big news coming in the form of a scoop from the Washington Post. And it's, that's since been confirmed by several outlets, including the New York Times, you know, that multiple Trump administration officials have been subpoenaed by the Department of Justice to appear before a federal grand jury investigating Donald Trump's involvement in January 6th. They're asking a lot of course questions. We also got word that they uh, they got hold of Mark Meadows and other Trump officials' phone records all the way back in April, and they've asked hours of detailed questions about Trump meetings that Trump led in December of 2020 and January 2021, specifically his pressure campaign on Vice President Pence to overturn the election, and what instructions Trump gave his lawyers and advisors about the fake electors and sending electors back to the states. You know, uh, they focus directly on this, specifically the extent of Trump's involvement in that fake elector uh, effort led by his outside lawyers, you know, John Eastman and Rudy Johnny. It's, it's, it's good news. Uh, it means that there is possibly some movement. The Department of Justice, you know, there's been a lot of criticism about Merrick Garland not moving on this. Uh, he, it's interesting that those leaks came at just about the same time he was on NBC News during an interview. But uh, we'll take what we can get. I, I think there is, uh, as I mentioned often in the show, I've got this weird streak of optimism going. But uh, I hope there is. Now, as a veteran, I have to mention with this outrageous action that did occur on Wednesday night, though, you know, there's been uh, <clears throat> the uh, a lot of my fellow veterans been working for, well, just years now on a, a legislation to help sick and ill veterans and service members who have been exposed to toxic burn pits and other toxins. If you know, if you've been around for even a day, you know about Agent Orange. Uh, if you don't know a lot about the lives of our service members, many have been exposed to these toxic burn pits that were used to burn our garbage and just about anything in Iraq and Afghanistan and downrange. The fumes from those have really made people sick. Uh, we've been working with John Stewart the act, uh, to help uh, but what's really sick is the outrageous actions of Senate Republicans on Wednesday afternoon. It's it's sick because supporters of the Sergeant First Class Heath Robinson honoring our promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act, which is a hell of a name. We all call it the PACT Act, had come to town and overly expected the overwhelming expected the House passed bill to sail the president's desk for censure. They were literally in town in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the passage of a bill and instead in a move that shocked a few veterans groups Wednesday night, 41 Senate Republicans blocked the bill's passage, including 25 who had supported the bill just a month ago. And unbelievably, none explained yet why they did it, but it appears to be, have been a move of petty partisanship over Democratic efforts to negotiate passages and other policy priorities with Senator Manchin. But see, I don't care why. Those chose pathetic partisanship 
of the lives of millions of my fellow veterans. And I've never seen so much rage in our community. I mean, honestly, if you have a chance, uh, go on. I think the, the Senate uh, VA committee, the Democratic VA committee, uh, did a press conference about an hour outside the Senate. I have never seen my fellow veterans advocates, the, the veterans service organizations, VFW, American Legion and others, so outraged. I mean, I have never seen so many F-bombs in a press conference ever. Uh, John Stewart has been an, on the absolute warpath, dropping F-bombs on CNN and everywhere else. Uh, he is not going to go quietly tonight. We are not going to go quietly tonight. This fight is going to get ugly. I really think Republican senators thought we would just quietly accept their little games and our, they, they overstepped. But meanwhile, you know, the world goes on, right? Uh, the GOP primary season continues. Uh, everybody's primary season continues. Missouri's is next Tuesday, this Tuesday, uh, you know, on, on Tuesday. It's caught the national eye as our Senate race includes disgraced former Governor Eric Greitens, among a veritable smorgasbord of other far-right nutters. Uh, it looks like our pseudo-Attorney General may be in the lead today. It depends on what day it is. The Democratic race is a bit of a toss, or at least it was. It's been thrown into a bit of a spin cycle when Anheuser Bush heiress Trudy Bush Valentine jumped into the race on qualifying day and has injected some five million or more of her own fortune into buying like all the airtime in the state. She locked up some really important uh, endorsements in the last few days, specifically uh, Mayor Char Jones of uh, of, of St. Louis. And, uh, that has really seemed to accelerate her campaign. And it appears that Miss Valentine will, uh, will likely get the nomination, which is remarkable since she's, she hasn't really campaigned a lot, but Hey, you know, modern politics. Uh, so it should be an interesting week. Uh, it's also a big part of why I invited today's guest to join us. Uh, Missouri is a, a fascinating microcosm of what we're doing in our country, uh, and, and, and the challenges we face. And I gotta be honest, I'm a bit of a super fan of today's guest. Since shortly after I moved back to my hometown of St. Louis, everyone I met, everyone, everyone kept saying, have you met Crystal Quaid? I mean, literally every meeting I had of a politician or a journalist is the same thing. So I find in the spring and everyone was right about her, her sharp intellect, political instincts and leadership. You know, when I made the list of future guests for the show, Crystal was the first name I penned in. So I'm excited to finally, finally have Missouri State Representative Democratic Floor Leader Crystal Quaid join us today. Now, a little context up front. Missouri has one of the largest state lower houses in the nation with 163 total members. When the 2022 session started, that house was made up of 108 Republicans and 49 Democrats. I know you heard that right. The Republicans have a 69% majority in the state legislature. Now, anyone who else would go into that would, uh, would have that see that as a daunting task. You know, that would be something hard to deal with when you're the minority leader, but not Crystal Quaid. Representative Quaid represents Missouri House District 132 in Greene County, which surrounds Springfield. She's elected to her first term of office in November 2016, and she was first elected by her caucus to serve as the House Minority Floor Leader just in her second term two years later in 2019, and has served since. We believe she's the youngest minority leader in the history of the state. She's got a Bachelor of Social Work uh, from Missouri State University and was the former director of Chapter Services of Care to Learn, a nonprofit organization addresses health, hunger, and hygiene needs of economically disadvantaged children in several school districts across Missouri. So I am just thrilled. Crystal, I'm so excited to have you on the show and appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me this morning as we wake up, and, uh, and welcome to On Democracy, if you want Good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. It's great to have you. So, you know, I think anyone listening who isn't familiar with Missouri politics is probably a little shocked to hear about that daunting task you face. You know, I mean, it's a GOP supermajority. You're one of the supermajority states, you know, but I've seen you do it, you know, with the real, with a, like a cool, I, I've never seen you stressed. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, you have, you have a keen sense of the larger strategy. So, you know, I, I, let's, I want you to kind of talk about upfront. I mean, what are the biggest accomplishments you like? You know, you, you've done some good stuff. You're, you, you know, you've done good work for the, the Missouri Missouri citizens, the Democrats. What are some of your biggest yeah. accomplishments you've been able to pull off in this environment, Crystal? Yeah, um, I appreciate that. It is a sometimes a daunting task, but we do really well with what we've got. Um, you know, when I talk about accomplishments, I could talk all day long about policies that we've passed um, and funding for things that we care about from the Democratic side. Um, and really what that boils down to is, making sure my members are okay with not getting credit for things. You know, when we find Republicans to, to 
work with across the aisle and um, share our thoughts and ideas and, and build those relationships. But ultimately, I think the, the thing that I am most uh, proud of is really how we've dug in in the past couple of years, but mainly this last legislative session in terms of strategy and really understanding how we utilize the, the 49 votes that we have. You know, the Republicans in Jeff City are as I'm sure across the country, fighting with each other so much and it's causing so much chaos and stalemate within policy that it really puts the Democrats in a unique situation where we can team up with unlikely allies um, various times and either pass or prevent something. And folks may or may not know in Missouri, we were actually, um, I believe, the state with the most anti-LGBT policy introduced this past session. Um, And we were able to stop all of it from passing. Um, there were 2,500 bills filed this year and only 64 pieces of legislation passed, which is the fewest since 1994. And while I'd much rather be doing, you know, working on the offensive and passing a whole bunch of stuff in a state like Missouri, when we can prevent them from passing really extreme legislation, especially attacking our trans kiddos, um, we call that a really huge success. Absolutely. I mean, I, that's a shocking number. I mean, 2,500 pieces and some of them are just nuts. I mean, it's a funny, it's a weird world because that always gets mentioned, you know, when these, these crazy acts get, uh, you know, get introduced. Um, but you, it's true. I mean, so many of them just die in the vine um, and, and, the, and the constant battle you fought. It is, it is a strange thing to be proud of. I, I get it saying, well, I killed a lot of stuff. <laughs> I mean, you, know, <laughs> you know, we're builders, right? People like us, we're builders, right? And you, I know you're a builder. You want to, you want to accomplish things. You want to make things happen, but there is truly um, a lot to be said and, and a place to hang your hat to be proud of, of defending those who can't, the defenseless and defending those who are being attacked from the most extremist uh, people and ensuring that, that that freedom reigns. Now, um, you know, we, kind of, we have a national audience in the show. Um, fortunately, I'm very fortunate. And, and you know, what are those key lessons? I think you hinted a little bit, you know, the key lessons you learned with the supermajority uh, and, and, and how you apply that. How can people apply that in our states? I think I think I heard very specifically understanding who your allies are, what the divides are on the other side. I mean, the, the Missouri Public Heart does seem to be very divided. And, and can you kind of lay that out, how that works? And what are some of the tactics you've learned and the strategies you learned to accomplish that? Absolutely. Um, you know, so Missouri is one of the states with, um, we have pretty, um, what I consider extreme term limits. And so what that means is folks only can serve eight years in each chamber in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And so people are always running for the next thing. And oftentimes right. forget to do the job that they were elected to do because they're worried about what's next. And especially this year here in Missouri, we had redistricting. And then Senator Blunt, as, as you mentioned at the start of the show, is no longer running. So we have this really contested U.S. Senate race. Um, and so we had a huge shuffle on the Republican side of folks running for other offices and priming each other for those offices. And so, yeah, it was it's really what I've learned is it's really about building close enough relationships so that as cheesy as it sounds, so you can get the dirt on who's mad at who that day (laughs) and really, really understanding like who you need to poke and, and who's teaming up with who for what piece of legislation. And then, then yeah, going and talking to the different groups or uh, the groups of the, of the Republican party that I completely disagree with and everything um, they call themselves the conservative caucus, but they're the extreme right folks. We're never going to agree on anything other than, stopping the moderate Republicans sometimes. <laughs> and then the moderate Republicans and us work together to stop the extremists, you know? And so it's really just having your your pulse on what is literally happening that day and who's angry at who and understanding how to flex in that way. It's remarkable. Now, what you're not claiming credit for, and I think you deserve is what I think is the underlying um, part of that is it sounds like you have a very disciplined caucus. I mean, in the end, the only way you can create that power is to keep your members, your, 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 your tens of members in line and working. So I, I, how have you done that? I mean, keeping your mm-hmm. caucus in line, making sure they are on the same hat. Has that been hard or do you have great success keeping your, yeah. your caucus as a block? Because I think a lot of this hinges, you don't claim credit for it, but it does hinge the fact that you are offering a block of, of, of votes um, pretty readily, pretty steadily, right? Yeah, uh, we are. And, and I appreciate that a lot. Um, you know, my, my team has been awesome to work with. Um, as you mentioned, they elected me floor leader as a freshman legislator, which is pretty rare. Um, but we did that as a, as a team. It wasn't me just jumping in saying, I want this, right? Every, we all understood why in the bigger mission. And, but in terms of like my strategy around that, it's, really just recognizing that each one of them are leaders and that they have their own constituencies that they care about. And 
listening where they are and what they need um, and knowing when to ask them to vote as a block. There are a lot of times that you'll see a lot of times that you'll see Democrats split on a whole tons of ton of issues in our state. And that's because our districts are all very different here in Missouri. It's <laughs> we've got urban and rural and, you know, I'm in Southwest Missouri and most of my caucus is in Kansas city and in St. Louis. And um, so it's knowing when to ask and when to hold the line and them understanding the power that it gives us. And, you know, over the years we've seen when we do it as a block, how influential we can be. And, you know, the more success you have, the more folks want to keep doing the same thing. I think what I what I hear too is kind of what we said at the top of the hour is that atop the conversation is that Missouri is a microcosm of a larger issue, right? Missouri is a microcosm of a larger uh, political framework, and I think especially in the Democratic Party, right? You you said it very well that you have uh, members who have very different districts. Most of your caucus is based in the two large cities, St. Louis and Kansas City, and but then there's the suburban issues. And, and and an understanding and, and, and of the rural issues and the rural issues isn't just farmers. Some a politician here in the state said something funny the other day. It's like I, I want to get outside the city because farmers are important. And, and, and it's funny in those few words saying that the only thing outside the cities is farmers, right? <laughs> you know. But you, I know, having visited Springfield, Springfield isn't farms. Uh, all you know. So I do think that's probably a big part of what you have to do, right? And 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 the Democrats as a, as a whole have to understand is how do we come together? Both the urban and rural divide um, has that that caused a lot of friction for you? Or are you guys able to find common ground that get towards and answer their needs? Um, I, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. Um, okay. it, it does cause friction sometimes, uh, depending on what the issue is. Um, and, and really, it's just a, a lack of exposure from folks, you know, who maybe live in the city who've never been in other places or vice versa. Um, but what I've found, and, and I think is such an important part of the discussion that not just in Missouri, but folks are having across the country. Yes, there is a divide, but the needs and wants of our constituents are all the same. People right. here in Missouri, no matter where they live, they want access to food that's affordable. They want to be able to have jobs that pay their bills. They want access to health care that's not going to make them bankrupt. And they want schools that are good for their kids. No matter where you live, that's what folks want. And that, that's what they talk about. And so really the key is figuring out where those crossovers are and how we can help each other. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that, that really is it. I mean, there are these are basic needs that we face as Americans, as Missourians and everybody else. Great. Now, you did touch on something a little bit a while ago about the, you know, the unusual things about uh, Missouri is we have very, very stringent term limits. You know, like, as you mentioned, two, two year terms, um, uh, four two year terms for state rep, two four year terms for state senators, even the governor. Um, and that does play in your strategy. It, I'm just curious, do you find that term limits are a good thing or is it something that's, because uh, I heard you say it's a good thing in your ability to, to do what you're doing. But by the larger picture, is that good or is it, does it hurt governing effectively? Yeah, in the large picture, when it comes to term limits, I think that they are one of the worst things that's ever happened to our state. Wow. And I say that, and I know what a bold statement that is. Um, yeah. You know, before I was elected, you know, I was on team term limits. I thought that it made sense. Um, but I can tell you, since I've spent the last six years in elected office, um, there's such a huge learning curve, but more importantly, there is a huge um, knowledge gap of the historical knowledge of what happens around public policy. And so what you see is the people who know things, who know why a bill passed or who made what deal or what was promised X, Y, Z, or whatever the case may be, the only folks in the building with that information are the lobbyists. And so well, I don't want to say all lobbyists are bad. I definitely don't believe that, um, especially in Missouri. We have a lot of really wonderful ones who who help us understand what's going on. Um, and I think when you talk to voters about how Jefferson City works and I have to tell them, yeah, if I want to know why this policy was started 25 years ago or how it impacted people in my town, the only person that I can go to is this lobbyist. That's not what people want. And right. it. it it puts the power dynamic, um, I think, in a, in a precarious situation. That's remarkable. And, and, and I know I heard some crazy stories when I first moved here from journalists. I work with political journalists about, like, the power of these lobbyists and that, that, you know, you know them by name, you know, they can sponsor, you know, if, if you're doing a, a, I don't know, a, a restaurant uh, hearing that the restaurant can actually sponsor the hearing, you know, <laughs> I mean, the, the laws are, are pretty thick and, and, and you've seen, um, we've seen some cases of public corruption lately. And I, I, it's funny how I never really connect the dots of term limits to that 
to that power in the lobbyists and the power of the corruption. Um, and so overall, that leaves you in a precarious position. And on top of that, I, is, is, you know, Missouri is also very conservative as far as their budgeting. There's always cuts, cuts, cuts. Mm-hmm. It does the, could professional staff make a better difference or the fact that we don't pay a lot of money? I mean, a lot of our government employees don't seem to get paid well. That kind of hurts us too, right? That there, this, this conservative goal of, uh, you know, dis- dismantling government, right? I mean, it, yeah. it leaves the professionals out of it, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a really great point. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. Missouri actually is the state with the lowest paid state workers in the country. Um, We this past year did some work on that. um, Thanks to Biden and the Biden administration sending money down to the states. We were able to, to work on that a little bit. But yeah, when I mean, the, the folks who work in the Capitol building are some of the smartest, most amazing humans I've ever met. But the reality is when we have really amazing lawyers making $50,000 a year, <laughs> they're not wow. going to stick around long, right? And so um, oftentimes it's a lot of young people straight out of school will come and do a couple of years and get some experience or it's folks who come back later in life. But yeah, it's hard to convince staff to stay for a long period of time. Um, simply just because the pay is not great. And so while you will have amazing people who help you and who can do the research, and um, but again, that historical knowledge just is lacking in the staff because we don't pay them enough to stay. Yeah, that's and that, and that once again, pushes power back on those, the lobbyists <laughs> and those who do have the power and the knowledge, which is going to be the ex-legislatures are now lobbyists. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really an interesting dynamic that it, it took me a, a, quite a while to kind of understand. But it is, again, it is a lesson for other places. There's a lot of talk about term limits. And you have to understand, you know, one of the things we spent a lot of time in the military talking about, and, and anybody who listens to the show knows, I talk a lot about second and third order effects, right? That, that a decision now especially at the legislative level, <clears throat> will have second and third order effects later that, that may not have been thought out, which which is a great segue into the Dobbs decision, right? <laughs> so the Dobbs decision, the, the Supreme Court, of course, uh, to over, essentially overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, I think a lot of people celebrate, especially on the right, that they, they're thrilled. It's, oh, this is a dream come true. They've overturned Roe v. Wade. But, you know, I've been telling a lot of my candidates I work with and, 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 and pundits that, you know, there's second or third order effects. This is not just your normal, uh, your normal, you know, Supreme Court decision that doesn't affect a lot of people. Uh, a lot of these laws are gone. Now, that brings us to Missouri, where we have, uh, a, a, we had a trigger law on the books. Um, of course, our, as we mentioned, our attorney general is running for Senate, so he gleefully signed the necessary paperwork. Governor Parson gleefully signed the paperwork, and Missouri was the first state to trigger their law that essentially outlaws um, uh, abortion. Now, uh, before we get into that, uh, can you tell me, for those who don't know, what's in that law? I mean, how is that going to impact our state both here in the near and the long term, those, those second and third order effects to this crazy law? What's in there, mm-hmm. and, uh, and how bad is it? Yeah. um, Well, first I'll say, you know, Missouri was already one of the most conservative states when it came to um, reproductive health care. Prior to the overturning of Roe, um, we had, you know, 72 hour waiting periods. We had the invasive vaginal ultrasounds, even for the medication. Um, You know, we we made it really tough here anyway. but then in 2019, uh, we did alter that law, um, push the weeks back so that it was fewer weeks. And then we, we did add that what the country now understands as trigger bans. Um, and what that means is once Roe was overturned, it just needed the attorney general or the governor to issue a proclamation to then put the piece of that law into effect. And so what it is now in the state of Missouri is you absolutely cannot access abortion care, even in cases of rape and incest, except for emergency life of the mother. Now, what's really complicated here in Missouri is that the bill was very intentionally drafted so vaguely that there's a lot of confusion around emergency life of the mother, what that means. There's a lot of confusion around things like emergency contraceptives or ectopic pregnancies and the treatment around that. And then various medications that are used for things even outside of abortion, but rheumatoid arthritis, cancer treatments, some of those medications that are used for that are part of our abortion language. And so we have folks all across the board really confused. Prosecutors are confused on when they're supposed to intervene. We have doctors and providers confused of at what point can they help save the life of the mother? Where is that definition? Um, And it, in my opinion, as I mentioned, was intentionally written this way so that some conservative prosecutor running for re-election can make a a name for themselves, you know, and it really is a, a scary time here in our state. And that's the second and third order effects, right? And that's that's what I've been saying. And, and, and a lot of my colleagues, the Democrats, it's funny, 
not to bemoan my peers, but you know, a lot of the strategists I've talked to, it's amazing how many say, no, nah, you know, it's not going to affect the election, you know, no. but I keep saying, dude, it's just going to take, I live in Missouri. There, there's going to be some country AG, you know, <laughs> like you said, he, 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 he's got his eye on the larger picture. He's got his eye on Jefferson city. Uh, and he's going to want to prosecute. He's going to want to be the first one to put one of those darn doctors in jail or one of those women in jail. Right. So mm-hmm. we are, we are a zealous uh, attorney, a general away from some very ugly things happening. Um, and so you've been ever since then, I mean, you, you and your colleagues have been working hard. Uh, I mean, I was on calls when the, uh, with the, uh, to, to the credit of the Democratic Party of Missouri and, and the various candidates and the various advocates in the state, I was getting calls when the decision leaked. So what are you and your colleagues doing in the Democratic Party and the House uh, leadership trying to fight back against the onerous effects of this? And, and what do you think is next for you guys to fight this? Yeah. So, you know, the first thing that we did right out the gate was ask our attorney general for an official opinion from his office um, on some of the confusing pieces of it. So notably, um, the morning after pill, the emergency contraceptive, the very first day, one of our very big hospital providers um, put out a statement saying they were no longer going to provide that as care for individuals. Um, And then a few hours later, change their mind <laughs> and put out another statement, you know, and so there, there's been a lot of confusion around that. And then, um, as I mentioned before, the, the who can get prosecuted when. And so the first thing that we did was we sent a, an official opinion request to the attorney general's office asking for him to put in writing how he interprets the law. Now, our staff, again, going back to the amazing people who work for us, we have a, a fantastic counsel who works for our caucus put together a memo of how we interpret that it does protect um, emergency contraceptives and other uh, birth control pieces and kind of did our interpretation of the law um, so that folks could have that information in case they need it. Right. Um, And so that was kind of step one was asking for the official opinion from the attorney general. Um, Of course, we have not received anything since then. And it's been over a month, I believe, since uh, or close to that we asked for that. Then super busy. He's so busy campaigning for so his busy U.S. Senate race. Wait, which yeah. is funny because um, the previous AG was also really busy campaigning for Senate. So it's a uh, tradition here in Missouri. That's but anyway. what we do here, as I mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, we, so, you know, I, I didn't hear back from him. So that was obviously not that I was expecting anything, but hoping he sure. might do his job. So then the next step, uh, my counterpart in the Senate, Senator uh, John Rizzo, who is the, the floor leader over there, and I put together a request from the governor to call a special session. So here in Missouri, our sessions are January January through May, and then we don't go back until the next year other than a, a one-day veto session. But the governor has the ability to bring us back at any time to address any specific pieces of legislation he wants. And, um, you know, our, our governors, since I've been elected, love to do this. We go back sometimes two, three times a summer. Um, and so we put in a request asking him to have a very specific narrowed special session so that we could clarify most notably the emergency contraceptive piece because our hospital providers are in this situation, um, and the life of the mother conversation, but also IVF and, um, this prosecutorial section of it as well. But so we put together this this special session request from the governor to which of course he said, no, um, I didn't get anything back in writing, but I'll tell you, Fred, I don't know if you saw this, um, but uh, we never heard back from him. But a reporter asked him at a press conference about it. And he said, no, I'm not going to call a special session. I kid you not, because because this is a complicated issue and doctors belong at the table and bureaucrats <laughs> shouldn't be making decisions um, about things like this. <laughs> Something like I mean, that. they didn't hear themselves, did they? He doesn't, I mean, he doesn't even hear himself, right? You talk about, you mentioned at the startup how you were dro- there dropping F-bombs and very angry. I was literally like <laughs> throwing things. I'm like, I don't, what are you talking about? So, so yeah, so we, you know, we've tried uh, those, those ways, the official ways to, um, to bring some clarity because people deserve right. to know exactly where they stand. Now I want folks to know not just in Missouri, but across the country, we c- folks can still access um, emergency contraceptive birth control. All of that stuff is still legal here. And we, and, and until we see some crazy prosecutor doing something, otherwise continue to seek care. And, and there are lots of resources. Um, and even on, on our website, uh, that Moat House Dems website, um, there are resources listed. Um, but, I think it's important that people have that clarity and, and especially our providers also are protected so that they, they can do their jobs. And so we were pushing for that, but we know that the governor is not going to make any moves at this time. 
Wow. I mean, the second and third order effects, when you, when you lay it out like that, especially personal, I mean, what you just heard is what I just heard is, 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 because what I just heard is how would a young woman, you know, how is a young woman who's trying to pick, let's say her college. Um, and we have world-class universities here. We have Washington university, you know, a huge system and, you know, an international university. Um, you know, I, I, kids from and young Americans and, and Chinese and everyone else comes from across the world to go to medical school here. Um, I, 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 the second or third effects of this owner's law. I mean, they have one of the top reproductive health centers uh, right there in St. Louis. Uh, how do you convince doctors that they'll be able to practice their medicine how, or even learn the how to practice mm-hmm. medicine in a state that outlaws a lot of the practices they're, they're learning or teaching? It's uh it just seems so so short-sighted, uh, and the larger effects could be devastating for the state and the future of the state. I mean, um, I, I, I respect what you're trying to do. <laughs> it really yeah. is. It, it is going to be interesting to see what the next steps are. So, you know, having said that, you know, we're facing a cascade of these extremist ideas, you know, uh, from leaders on the right. Missouri, you know, was a purple state at one point. I mean, everybody likes to point out that Claire McCaskill was one of our senators just four years ago. You know, I've had the privilege to talk to you about your work to raise up Democratic candidates and work your way back from the brink. You know, what's your strategy now? I mean, in the, what I've heard a lot of in this, I'm sure anybody who's listening heard a lot of is, you know, we're fighting with one hand, you know, from the rear. We're, we're fighting against the wall. What is your strategy to move the Democratic Party back into a position of more strength in Missouri? Yeah, um, it's a great question. And to be honest with you, the reason that I wanted to run as uh, the floor leader as early as I did was simply because of that, because, you know, we can we do great work in Jefferson City. We stop bad things. We do pass a lot of legislation uh, for how few of us there are. Um, But until we grow our numbers it's not going to get much better. And so I really wanted to run um, for the leadership position because part of that role is to flip seats red to blue. And so I am also in charge of the campaign arm for the House Democrats. Um, And to be very honest with you, that infrastructure just hasn't existed in our state in a very, very long time. And so the it's a I'm trying to think of how to narrow this down because I could talk to you for hours about the way out of this. But, <laughs> okay. but the the reality is is that in a state like Missouri, it's going to take time. Um, you mentioned you know we had Senator Claire McCaskill just a few years ago. When I first ran, Democrats held every statewide office except for one in 2016. Um, wow. Of course, we, we lost them um, <laughs> except for the one. Um, but we. It hasn't been that long ago, but the reality is, is to get back to a governing majority in our state is going to take probably about 10 years. Um, and so it's kind of a, it's a multifaceted thing that we're trying to do here when it comes to building infrastructure. First and foremost, it's redefining what it means to win in a state like Missouri. Um, we have a handful of seats that are toss up seats. And I will say post redistricting, we are in a much better situation than we were just last year in terms of competitive house seats in Missouri. Um, And we have, just to give a number, because I'm a huge data person, but um, prior to redistricting, there were 49 House seats that President Biden won. We had 49 Democrats in the House. Now there are 57 House seats that President Biden won. So that just out the gate, we're already in a better situation for trying to flip some of those seats. And I'll mention we're only six seats away from breaking their supermajority, which for our House rules is a big deal. We could get into the weeds of what that means for procedural stuff, but six seats is all we need to break that, which is awesome. But it's not just about breaking those seats, right? It's how do we build back so that we actually can become speaker and have the gavel again and control the narrative and the policies that go through. And that's where it comes in of redefining what it means to win. You know, there are a ton of seats here in our state that uh, asking a Democrat to run in right now, uh, they'll laugh at you because there's absolutely no way that we could win majority of the seats in our house. Um, but when I ask folks to run, the conversation isn't let's flip this seat this year. It's I need you to move it five points and here's how we're going to do it. And then I need you to run again and we're going to move it three more points. And here's how we're going to do it. Um, And looking at this in long term goals. Um, And then the other piece of it is is providing that campaign support that here in Missouri hasn't been happening. You know, when I ran in 2016, I was the only it was the only Dem seat in the southern half of the entire state. Um, and fortunately I had done some campaign work for, uh, organizing for America, Obama's campaign arm. I'd worked for Senator Claire McCaskill. So I understood, I I knew how to run a campaign. 
Um, if I hadn't, I'm not sure we would have held on to it because I didn't get any support until the very, very end, until like September of the election year. And so I had to raise and spend like $125,000 my first go when the Republicans spent a good 250 against us. Um, wow. and, and I did it on my own, right? And right. so a big piece of what what we're doing and what I have been working on uh, for the past um, four years as leader is creating that infrastructure so that Democrats who run anywhere in our state are getting supported. Things like headshots and websites and campaign plans and access to staff. Um, right. And so, you know, I'm really proud to say, you know, you mentioned what are your, one of your biggest accomplishments. To be very honest with you, I think building this infrastructure is what we should be most proud of because for the past four years, we have five, five full-time campaign staffers. The same team who worked on last election cycle is still with us on this election cycle. We are supporting candidates in ways we never have before, but also, and, and when I say that, I don't necessarily mean financially. I mean with the staff and the things um, that basic support for running a campaign everywhere in our state, regardless of whether folks can win. And then it's targeting our money and our, and our additional resources in the places that we think we can flip. Um, and so it's, it's a multifaceted thing, but it really boils down to, we've got to build the infrastructure. We ought to be honest with folks about our state and where we are, where the numbers are, where the wins, where the flips can actually happen and being real with people, being real with our donors. When we say, Hey, I need this money. We're not going to win in this seat, but here's where your money is going to go and why it's important for building. And to be honest with you, when we look at our statewide elections, um, our statewide candidates can, you know, they they don't have time to go to all of our counties. They don't have, you know, it, especially in a state like ours with the the money switch that we have. And so if we can build from the bottom up and build that support we also help that top of the ticket too. Um, yeah. And so if, if I have local races that folks really believe in the, a Democrat because it's their neighbor, not because they, they like the Democrats, but because they know that person, then we can flip the narrative and encourage them to vote for the top of the ticket too. So we're really, we're really spending our energy in this bottom-up philosophy of building that infrastructure so that we can take the power back. And uh, I just, I'm so glad you finished with that because, you know, you know, I work with congressional campaigns. I say that a lot, you know, that if, if you really look and dissect some of these statewide campaigns uh, across the country that have lost uh, on most of the Democrats, it really is about that. It is about energy in rural districts, energy in less population districts, and turning that into success for the larger. So you're right. If we invest the ground, if we invest in, in, in infrastructure, which I love, and I think, you know, honestly, I I, I, I seeded that question because I knew the answer, right? <laughs> because that was one of the things, one of the things I, I love when we, you and I very the first time we were talking was the strategy, understanding that there's a, it's a building process, that our opponents on the right did that. They understood they weren't going to win every election every year. That it was going to be a multi-year process, a multi-cycle process. Uh, unfortunately, it seemed like uh, for those of us that have become the left, there was it's always a short-term gain. So win, mm -hmm. run this election, win this election, win only the national ones, right? Win the big ones. And you're right. It is a ground-level operation. And it, it's thrilling to me. And, I, and the reason I want you on the show especially is to – I think a national audience needs to hear that. That, look, we're – for us to keep the House and keep the Senate, for us to win the White House, it doesn't start in Washington. It doesn't start at the state level races. It does start in Missouri House District 152. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you heard of it? No, I have no idea what that is, right? But but the important point is, if I get, you know, if you're right, if it goes from a 37 points to 45 points, that's a lot of folks who are now yeah. down or have registered who you now have data on. Let's be honest. You, you have mm -hmm. their name you, and you can rally their, them and their friends next time. It's uh, I, I really love that launcher strategy you've got building here. Well, and that is huge. It is. And, right. and one thing I want to add to that is, is when we're talking about dollars too, um, you know, it's, I know folks really want to give to the exciting, flashy U S right. Senate race in whatever district right. or whatever state. But the reality is, $10,000 in a legislative house seat in a state like Missouri can flip it red to blue. And wow. when we're talking, you know, it, it obviously the races cost more than that, but, but sometimes we had last cycle, uh, just as an example, last, last cycle, um, we had a really great gubernatorial candidate, um, who ran a hard race, but lost by 17 points, which is a huge wow. loss. But yeah. in the Missouri legislative level, we were able to hold every seat and flip a seat red to blue in southwest Missouri. That seat wow. that we flipped was flipped by 79 votes. Wow. And so when we talk about dollars and resources, 
if we send a couple thousand dollars to a seat like Betsy Fogel down here in Springfield, Missouri, where a difference of less than 100 votes is the difference between a pro-life Republican man and a pro-choice Democratic woman in the state legislature in a place like ours, that's where the resources need to go. And to the points we've already made, flipping a House seat in a place like Springfield, Missouri, turns out those Democrats, those, those progressive voters who will then vote for the top of the ticket, too. And so I encourage folks when they're really, especially a time like right now, when everybody's asking, when you're trying to consider where you should be spending your money and a good use of your time, your volunteer hours, it's the local races because they are literally won and lost by a couple hundred votes. Ah. There you go. You got my talking point in. I love it. <laughs> That's it, right? It is local. It is is neighbor to neighbor. It is building community around you, you and your candidate. It is is knocking on doors. I mean, it's it's uncomfortable as hell. And I mean, I know you. I can't imagine when you started and, and, and how young you were, especially like just knocking on strangers' doors to talk about politics um, in this day and age and not getting shot. Uh, <laughs> you know, but it, it works. It really does. It does. Work, right. It does. It, it you know, at the, when, when a candidate shows up your door, you never forget that. It is such a, it's such a, a gratifying part of our, our democracy. And, and I, I really appreciate it. I, you're, you nailed it. It is, you and I see eye to eye now. I think it's what we've gotten along is it is, we have to turn out people at the local level. We have to flip house seats. We have to flip state senate seats and, mm-hmm. and ensure that we're building democracy at the ground level. Cause that's what this is. Democracy is about us as a community. Mm-hmm working together for a greater good. And it just makes me so happy. And, and you touched on it a little bit. And I, I had the question, you know, it, it can, it, it, those national donor, I mean, I can, it sounds like it could make a huge difference, right? A national donor or, or getting attention or, or the kind of folks. I mean, I think you, you probably do struggle a little bit with the, well, I'm not going to criticize the Missouri party, but the, the, the state party level, the national party level, um, what's your message to those large organizations and, and, and those outside organizations that do invest mm-hmm. in races across the country? You know, which I think you kind of touched a little bit, you know, your message is that democracy starts here, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, to clarify, every state is different in terms of their structure and their campaign finance laws. But I think it's important for folks to do a little bit of research to know where that money is going to go. Right. Cause not right. every state party invest in candidates. Um, some no. states do, some don't. Here in Missouri, we have the House Democratic Campaign Committee and the Senate Democratic Campaign Committee. Those two entities were the ones who recruit the candidates, who train them, who spend the money on those races. Um, now, not every state is set up that way. And so I think it's really important that, that folks do just a couple of Google searches um, before they yeah. just determine to where to invest. But, but yeah, I think it, um, you know, the message is of course, it's on the ground, and that's how we make change. And when I, we look at going back to the abortion stuff, you know, Missouri, if we had a different legislature, if our House looked different in 2019 than it does now or than it did at that moment, we wouldn't have been a trigger ban state. But because there were right. so few of us to fight back, the bill passed. And even with the overturning of Roe, we would have millions of people here in our state would still have access to care. Um, the state legislators matter so much than people realize. Yeah, and that's and that's unfortunately the lesson that our opponents know. Or, or they've known that for years. Yeah. And and frankly, they're doing it at the local level. And they figured out that board, school boards matter and city mm-hmm. councils matter. And we're seeing that. I mean, it's it's shocking to me how we've seen some really extreme candidates here in Missouri. Um, we live at a school district that was that was taken over by some of the extremists. They were the anti-maskers. Then it became anti-CRT, and then became school board members um, because mm-hmm. they have always figured out um, the conservative movement of Forge has always figured out it starts at the ground level. So I'm glad, I'm glad we are. So with all that, I mean, one question I often get from my followers and listeners of the show is, you know, what can they do to fight back? You know, so many of us feel helpless against this movement. You're in the battle at the state level. You're in the battle, truly the local level in Greene County and Springfield. How can average Missourians or average Americans in red states push back at their level? What, what can the average person do to help make a difference? Yeah, I mean, there's so much, so much work to be done. Um, but you know, you said the word just a few moments ago of getting uncomfortable. And I, that is the, I usually use that word every time I sit down and try to talk to people about getting involved. Um, because yeah, talking about candidates, talking about political issues is uncomfortable. And especially over the mm-hmm. past few years in our country, the divide has gotten larger and larger. But the reality is, is that they are taking our rights away and it's our, it's so far past and uncomfortable. <laughs> and so right. it's really, it's just, you know, we've got to get over that. We've got to be willing to invest our time and our energy behind people, behind our candidates in the movement. And so, yeah, what can, what can average folks do? I mean, people hate to hear it, but the most effective thing that you can do is knock on doors and talk to voters. 
Um, you know, each candidate is going to have a infrastructure that they are doing. They, we have strategy, we have data, we know who to talk to, we know who not to talk to. Right. Um, and so it's, it's linking up with your local candidates, um, with whichever level it is and finding out what they need. Um, I can tell you here in Missouri, the number one need we have is door knocks. The second need we, we have is phone calls, especially mm-hmm. in a time of redistricting. We have all different areas now that we cover. And so this summer, what we've been doing for my race is just going and talking to our neighbors and being like, Hey, I'm your state representative. Now, what do you need? What can I do for you? These aren't hostile conversations. These are, you know, just discussing with your neighbors, what they're upset about, what we can do better. Um, and so door knocks and phone calls are huge, but it goes beyond that too. I know a lot of folks don't want to do that. Um, you can start small, start by baking cookies for the volunteers who are knocking the doors, right? <laughs> Show up to the office and just hang out with people and, and, you know, help staple things, you know, whatever. There is always something for someone to do. But I will right. say, don't be surprised if you show up with cookies, we're going to ask you to make some phone calls. And then we're going to ask you to knock some doors. Because truly, every election is won by talking to people. And the one thing that I have to say, I, I both am very proud of this, but also sometimes a little cringy. You know, I ran in 2016 for the first time. And I had my yard sign in the same yards that Donald Trump did. Ne- right next to each other, Donald Trump, C- Crystal Quaid. It's the weirdest thing. But we did it because we talked to people, right? And and we went right. and we said, hey, you know, the national level is nuts. There's so much happening. But let's talk about our school board right here or our local school district and how they need funding. Or let's talk about how we haven't expanded Medicaid yet, which we have now. But at the time, we didn't. Um, you know, and we made it local. And we talked about what folks needed. And we had Republicans voting for us left and right. We had new registered voters who had never voted before. Um, Missouri has really interesting laws around um, those who are incarcerated and a lot of folks who don't know they're allowed to vote and we find them and we give them a voice for the first time. All of that happens by talking to people. And so, yeah, folks need to get uncomfortable, but everybody can do it. Oh, I love it. And that's such, that's perfect. I mean, I, I remember the first time I knocked on doors, I was so nervous. I mean, <laughs> you know, and, and you get, you get door slammed in your face. You get people who, oh, I don't do politics. Like, well, uh, politics does you. Uh, right. <laughs> but, and, uh, I, I got bad news for you, but you said something key at the end there, as you always do is, it, it, it is about what we do for uh, our communities. And, 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 and a lot of uh, the people who've been elected in the last few years, especially, it's a lot of performance. I mean, I, we really see it here in Missouri, right? It's performance artists. They're there. They're there for the clicks. They're there to see if they can own the libs or whatever the case may be. Uh, but they're not actually legislating. They're not actually doing good things for constituents. And I think you make a compelling case at the local level saying, well, what what has your state rep done for you? You know, And, and this is what I'm going to do for you. This is, this is the power. Of it. And it, it may not just be passing a law. You're very powerful person in your community when you're a state rep you can talk to the mayor you you can get the door you know you can knock on doors you you can get hold of the state department transportation about that stuff being done right <laughs> and and that's the power of constituent services the power of being an actual representative of the people and we, we kind of have to do a little education to people don't we do you find yourself almost educating people on what a state rep does as you do these things oh absolutely yeah i'll knock doors and say hey i'm your state rep and they're like what is that <laughs> you know and, um, i absolutely we do um because there's, yeah. there's so much going on in this world, they don't need to know who I am. Right. And so, um, yeah, a big piece of what we, what, what we do is to your point, constituent services, and it's talking to them about what, what our role actually is. Um, and then helping them get resources. That is 90% of my job is folks who can't get on Medicaid because our state, our department is just completely upside down in a whole hot mess. And then I can make some phone calls from my office and get somebody enrolled. Um, you know, there's all sorts of things like that, that we do, but again, folks don't know to call us. They don't know that their elected government leaders should be doing this stuff for them. And so that's part of it too, is we knock doors, not just to win elections, but it's to find the people who need help. And that's, I can tell you, my volunteers' most favorite stories are when they knock a door of somebody who's in need, and then we're able to help them. And that is so much of what we do. And I know that that's also what keeps our volunteers coming back, um, because we're, we're making change one door knock at a time. And it's really, really cool. Oh, I love that. And what a great place to finish this conversation. I think, I think the reason that people like you get into this, right, is you want to serve. I mean, and, and there's not enough of people to do that. But what you said is very clear is that it's the opportunity to serve our community and make them better, that the, the power of government to, to make people's better lives is the whole point of it. We are paying tax. I, I joke a lot that being fiscally conservative, really, um, which the Republicans like to say a lot, also means that if I'm paying taxes, 
that the community and, and even me will get something from that, right? <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And good government, good leaders like you are, I, I, we won't call it that, fiscally conservative in the sense of we understand that we made to make the government work for the people who pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and too often we don't. So what a great place. With that, any final things we may have missed you'd like to touch on, Crystal? Or uh, 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 we touched on a lot in this conversation. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate you bringing attention to the local level and the local races. Um, and I hope folks ac- across the country really lean into that message um, because, yeah, we there's so much happening at the federal level. We're one or two votes away from from really big, impactful things. And, and we know that. And we need to keep working and fighting that fight. But the way out, especially in states like Missouri, is from the bottom up because it doesn't matter who's in our governor's mansion or who's our U.S. state or who our U.S. senators are. We still have legislators passing these abortion bans, going after trans kids, going after our workers, um, getting rid of things like prevailing wage, attacking initiative petitions, you know, like the list goes on and on. And it doesn't matter who's at the top. Those things are still going to become law. And I just really hope that folks uh, begin to understand that and really flip the way that we look at these things. I love it, man. Thank you so much. Chris, thanks for being a part of this great chat. I know you're in the heat of the election. I mean, you've got a primary coming as well. <laughs> you know, good luck next week. You know, thanks for being a part of this. Guy. Thanks for everything you do for, you know, just the whole community, the whole state. I'm, I'm just, I'm so proud to know you and honored to know you. And I know you took a lot of time. We had you do this twice. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so good luck next week. Good luck in the fall. How can the people find you online if they want to check, check out your, uh, your important work you're doing? Yeah, thanks. Uh, my Twitter handle is um, at Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L underscore Quaid, Q-U-A-D-E. Website is crystalquaid.com. Uh, of course, we've got Facebook, Snapchat, all the things that you're supposed to have, but, but I'm definitely most active on Twitter. There you go. We'll follow our folks. It's worth it. I appreciate uh, I appreciate your time, Crystal. Uh, I, I tell you, if you're a listener, a regular listener, these conversations about where our democracy, this is where it's at. It's, it's, it's people like Crystal Quaid here fighting the good fight for us, for all of us to make our communities better. So thank you. As always, you can find me on Twitter at FP Wellman. I, I've also got an official Instagram now where it's mostly pictures of me walking everywhere. Uh, we've got a Facebook page all called cleverly FP Wellman official. I'd love you to follow. I also have my work. Uh, pushing back against the ratio of January 6th, uh, the anti-democratic march uh, with the Beer Hall Project, our website's beerhallproject.com, at Beer Hall Project, everywhere. Some cool stuff coming from that organization. As mentioned at the top of the podcast, you can find this place on Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere. Always live here on Colin. Tell your friends if you like the show. Hope you give us a great review. Thanks, everyone, for joining on Democracy. We'll return again for our next episode next week. I've got an interesting one, another great conversation with, uh, you may have seen his ad uh, a few weeks ago on TikTok, uh, uh, Florida, you know, Florida, Florida candidate for Congress. He was turning up the Internet, and he'll be joining us to talk about Florida politics and social media. With that, Thanks for joining uh, the show. Thank you, Crystal. Have a great day. Good luck next week. And we are out of here.